Hello and welcome to the Tuesday, April 4th, 2023 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone, to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz bassist, composer, arranger, and educator, Ben Allison. In a career that spans over 30 years, bassist composer Ben Allison has developed his own instantly identifiable sound. Known for his inspired arrangements, inventive grooves, and hummable melodies, Ben draws from the jazz tradition and a range of influences from rock and folk to 20th century and a broad range of music from around the world, seamlessly blending them into a cinematic, cohesive whole. With his small groups, Ben has toured extensively throughout the world, building new audiences with an adventurous yet accessible sound and a flair for the unexpected. Born in New Haven, Connecticut, Ben has performed and collaborated with an extremely diverse range of artists, including Udist Ara Dinkjan, Cora player Mamadou Diabate, saxophonist Lee Konitz and Joe Lovano, Cambodian Shapai master Kong Ne, legendary performance artist Joey Arias, tap dancers Jimmy Slide and Gregory Hines, and us U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky, to name a few. Allison has appeared on over 50 albums by various artists and has written music for film, television, and radio, including the theme for the National Public Radio NPR show on the media. The score for Two Days, a play written by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Donald Margulies, and the theme for The Conversation, a webcast talk show hosted by Farrell, Pharrell Williams. In 2005, 2008, and 2013, 
Ben was a featured composer, arranger, and performer with Jazz Symphonica, an 80-piece orchestra based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The orchestra performed arrangements of compositions from his various albums. Ben performed his Carnegie Hall debut as a leader in February 2012. Ben has released 13 albums on Palmetto Records, all of which showcase Ben's forward-thinking vision as a bassist, composer, arranger, producer, and mixing engineer, as well as his hands-on approach to his craft. Seven of Ben's albums have reached number one on the CMJ, National Jazz Radio Charts, often remaining in the top ten for many weeks, garnering him eight CSAC National Performance Awards. His album, Action Refraction, was named one of the best albums of 2011 of any genre by National Public Radio, and Time Out New York. His albums have consistently been named as among the best of the year by publications such as Billboard, The New York Times, The Boston Globe, The Village Voice, Jazz Times, Jazz Journalists Association, Downbeat Critics Poll, All About Jazz, Coda Canada, Jazz It, Italy, and Jazz Review, United Kingdom, among many others. Over the past two decades, Ben has solidified his reputation as a strong voice for artist empowerment and musicians' rights. In 2001, he served as an advisor to the Doris Duke Foundation, helping to establish Chamber Music America's new works creation and presentation program. He has served as a panelist and featured speaker at conferences led by the International Association of Jazz Educators, Chamber Music America, the Association of Performing Arts Presenters, Jazz Times, the Doris Duke Foundation, the New York State Arts Presenters, the Jazz Connect Conference, and the Jazz Composers Collective. Ben served two terms as president of the board of the New York chapter of the Recording Academy and chaired the Advocacy Committee from 2012 until 2019. He also served two terms as vice president and acted as an alternate national trustee. He has met with state and federal senators and representatives on subjects ranging from intellectual property rights to technology and arts funding. In June 2012, Ben testified before the House Committee on Energy and Commerce in support of performing rights. In 2015, Ben organized and moderated the first ever Grammy Town Hall in New York City which featured an expert panel and keynote address by legendary producer Tony Visconti. He has appeared on radio programs produced by WBGO and WNYC, 
where he has discussed issues relating to music piracy and intellectual property rights and is an active member of the New York State Coalition, New York is Music. At the age of 25, Ben formed the Jazz Composers Collective, a musician-run, nonprofit organization based in New York City that was dedicated to constructing an environment where artists could exercise their ideals of creating and risking through the development and exploration of new music. As the artistic director and a composer in residence of the collective, Ben produced or co-produced over 100 concerts and special events, including the collective's annual concert series, which ran for 11 seasons, national and international tours by collective artists, and ongoing collective residency at New York City's Museum of Modern Art, and in partnership with the United States Embassy, a series of concerts and educational activities in Sao Paulo and Campinas, Brazil. From 2001 to 2005, Ben organized an annual Jazz Composers Collective Festival at the Jazz Standard, which drew international attention as a mainstay of New York City's cultural life. As an author, Ben has contributed articles to Downbeat, Jazz Times, Bass Player, Premier Guitar, Bass World, Double Bassist, and TheTalkHouse.com. He co-wrote with pianist Frank Kimbrough the liner notes for the CD, Herbie Nichols, The Complete Blue Note Recordings. In 2005, Ben received the Bird Award, Holland's highest honor for jazz musicians. Ben has been cited in the Downbeat Critics Poll Bassist category from 2010 to 2021, Composer category 2010 to 2020, and won the Rising Star Bassist category in 2005, 2006, and 2007. He's also been cited in the Rising Star album, Rising Star Acoustic Group, Rising Star Arranger, and Rising Star Jazz Artist categories 2003 to 2015, as well as the bassist category of the 2005 to 2014 Downbeat Reader's Poll. Ben has received commissioning, performing, and recording grants from the Chamber Music America, the Mary Flagler Carey Charitable Trust, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Aaron Copeland Foundation, the Mid-Atlantic Arts Foundation, Meet the Composer, and the American Composers Forum, among others. Ben is an associate teaching professor at the College of Contemporary and Performing Arts at the New School, where he teaches classes in music business and entrepreneurship, music production and technology, and the capstone class for graduating seniors called Senior Seminar. He has taught classes and led ensembles on subjects ranging from the music of Thelonious Monk, Wayne Shorter, Miles Davis, Herbie Nichols, and R&B to advance concepts of improvisation and composition, as well as individual instruction on bass performance and composition. <clears throat> he currently serves as co-chair 
of the University Faculty Senate and serves on the COPA Executive Committee and the UFS Governance Committee. From 2011 to 2015, Ben was a visiting artist and ensemble instructor at New York University's Summer Jazz Workshop and has conducted clinics and residencies at over 100 universities and conservatories throughout the United States, Italy, Brazil, Belgium, the UK, Portugal, Denmark, and Mexico. From 2009 to 2010, Ben was a teaching artist at the Vile Music Center at Carnegie Hall. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Ben Allison. Hello, Ben. Hey, Craig. It's uh, really great to uh, talk with you and to have you as a guest on my podcast today. That's good to talk with you. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, there's a question I, I ask everybody because I'm always interested in everyone's origin story, if you, so to speak. Hmm. And that is, I'm interested in knowing who or what turned the light on for you, what turned you on to music. And then kind of as a yeah. corollary to that, who or what turned you on to jazz? Right. Okay. So good question. Um, I grew up in a household uh, and a, a family of, you know, there are no musicians in my family. So um, except for my mother, who is an amateur, I guess you could say, amateur singer. She's She has a whole career uh, as an educator, but on the side, she loved to sing choral music. So I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of choral music, joined a boys choir for a little while, and was always, um, you know, taken with live performance. But most of what I saw was live performance of choral music. And it wasn't until fourth grade, I think something like that. The two musicians, two jazz musicians came into my school, uh, into music class, and I had never heard anything like it. It was really um, surprising. And I think the thing that stuck out to me is I remember specifically a couple of times early on in the performance where they just started uh, laughing a little bit or looking at each other with kind of knowing glances. This is instrumental music, piano, bass, mm -hmm improvised music um but they were looking at each other and kind of cracking up a little bit and i thought well what's the joke i mean there were no lyrics i couldn't understand what they were laughing about and then it dawned on me that they were surprising each other and that i think sowed a seed in me um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i was fascinated by that how, how you could do that i mean all the choral music i'd ever heard was was uh notated fully notated all the records I had ever listened to sounded the same every time you listened to them. And I just, the idea of something new happening in the moment, I didn't know that was a thing until I saw it and heard it. And I guess that's probably the moment if I had to pinpoint one that put me on the path of, you know, I spent the rest of my life trying to figure out how they do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, uh, for years I taught jazz history and appreciation. And, you know, most of the students that I would have would have little or no music background. Mm. And so their exposure to music was primarily popular music, which is primarily vocal oriented. There are, of course, right. some instrumental only hits, but they're in a, in a uh, very small minority. And so when I would talk to them about, you know, 
yeah, why jazz was was really cool was because, you know, they're making the music in the moment. And, and they said, well, how do you know you like it? And I said, well, it's sort of like what makes you laugh when somebody tells a good joke. You know, a good joke is basically comprised of a setup, which is going to be familiar kind of imagery or, or uh, you know, what things that you would expect and a surprise. And that surprise then triggers a hedonic negative response and you laugh. Well, I said in jazz, it's kind of the same way. We, we uh, the musicians are drawing upon a, uh, mutually understood uh, language because they're going to be playing, uh, you know, usually in the same key and they're going to be maybe even playing over the same tune that they might uh, all understand. And, uh, but the, the, the punchline, if you will, of the music is when uh, someone in the course of improvisation or interpretation of a given phrase does something that's a little bit different. And that's, that's kind of tickles our innards and, uh, and what uh, makes the music intriguing. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I used to, course i would use that as an example of of i would tell an actual joke you know a really stupid joke but it would be one to demonstrate those kinds of of elements and then uh you know and i said well you know then a good improvis improvis improviser it knows enough to combine enough of what is familiar with certain turns or twists that are unfamiliar and that's what captures your ear and uh so I think you you also describe very much what I think is uh, the thing that captures a lot of our attention in, in jazz music or improvised music of any kind, or maybe any music of that kind. You know, um, when we think about even classical music, which, you know, we can study the score, we can listen to it, you know, uh, ahead of time uh, on a recording. But when we go to the live performance and a particular conductor uh, puts a specific twist of interpretation that kind of makes go hmm i never thought of it that way before or i got something out of it i hadn't thought about so it's it's really kind of a cool uh thing about music and i think you described your experience beautifully in terms of uh uh you know how you came to the music and how you continue to chase it uh i think it's probably fair to say that we're still trying to unravel and figure out a lot of things of what people are doing yeah, that's true. And it's also, um, you know, what makes something funny or interesting or emotionally wrenching one moment is different because it's culturally specific, it's time specific. I mean, there are some things that, that transcend time, but there are other things that feel of the moment, you know, and context is important. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we're, as musicians, when we're learning the craft, I mean, we're, we're, we take a lot of time and it takes a lot of time and, and effort to learn the craft. I mean, learning how to tell a joke is, is no, it's no joke. <laughs> it's it true. A lot of work. Some people do it really well and others don't. Um, yeah. But, you know, learning how to tell a story is also, you know, to expand it beyond just the, that one narrow definition. I mean, to telling stories and, and helping people understand things and showing things from a, uh, a perspective that people can relate to or not, or be surprised by 
or feel kind of in concert with. Those are skills you develop over a long time. So musicians, jazz musicians are are learning how to do that with their instruments and with the way that they play with one another, which is like a lifelong pursuit. I mean, it's not something you just kind of pick up. So even right. though, you know, I was thinking about um, somebody the other day asked me about um, this, this, these records that I've been older records of mine that I've been remixing and remastering. And, and uh, what was one of the first things I noticed when I opened up the sessions for the first time and listened to the original recordings. And the first thing that poked out to me was all the banter in between takes, all the talking among ourselves, conversations that I don't remember at all. But mm-hmm. um, what I heard was, was, you know, there was a lot of joking around. There was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of storytelling, but it was joking around with a purpose you know, it, it was also a way for us to kind of, um, you know, when you're recording something, it, it's it's you're you're putting something down that that's forever. What you say will be kind of immortalized on tape. There's a certain kind of pressure that comes with that. So so part of it is a mind game, and I think when, in the same way that musicians joke with music and then joke through verbal interaction, um, sometimes diffusing the tension and just saying, yeah, it's okay. This is all right. We're going to have a conversation now, you know, no worries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. It could get weird, but just strap in and prepare for, for something challenging, or it could be really easy, but you know, there's, there's, um, there's no harm in it. Um, no, I, I think if you set up that vibe as a musician, then you're, you're on the right track. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, uh, making music is a human endeavor. And uh, I think that it's something that, you know, I, I always uh, try to convey to like the bands that I conduct. Uh, I have two different uh, concert bands that I, I conduct. And, uh, and that is that uh, remember that when we're here, we're here to play music we don't work music we don't slave music we don't suffer toil you know Mm -hmm. we play and so Mm -hmm. it should be it should be fun and uh we take that fun seriously but it nonetheless should be fun and uh, we should leave every rehearsal with a smile on our face and and knowing that we just spent the last couple of hours doing something that we enjoyed doing and uh, gained a lot of pleasure from recording sessions are certainly a little more pressure because of course time is money and and you're you know you're trying to get something down and get it uh get it on uh, uh recorded in in a given time without wasting anybody's time uh even though you want to you know uh, be rela- as relaxed and so forth as possible but uh yeah, and that recording is is the pressure because yes, then there's a, a, a particular moment, your uh, something that you love is now uh, kind of recorded or or stored, if you will, in the amber of time, you know, and it's uh, and it's there for that that way for as long as the uh, uh, artifact exists, uh, and uh, so. Yeah, there's lots of different pressures and lots of different different ways of uh, doing things. But I think you still hit on something that's important and vitally important, and that is that we have that human interaction and that it it's enjoyable. I mean, 
there, there's got to be a reason that we do it, right? I mean, sure, we make some money, right? But but that isn't our only motivation because, uh, you know, I, I used to also joke with my students. I said, being a musician is the only profession where you get together with other musicians and you just play music for no other reason than to play music. I mean, you don't hear of plumbers that call each other up on the weekend and say, hey, let's go fix some pipes, you know, or accountants that call each other up on the weekend and say, let's go balance, an, you know, the book somewhere. But musicians will get together and jam and, and just play to have fun. And I said, it's, it's pretty unique, I think, for, for music people. Uh, but, well, I have kind of a... Uh, Oh, I don't know if it's a philosophical or an artistic or what kind of question exactly, but just interested in your perspective. You know, jazz comes in a lot of different flavors. And uh, Ben, what is the essence of jazz across all of its various flavors? And how is jazz different from other styles of music? <laughs> okay, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I mean... For me, in a in a the essence of it, I don't know how to I don't know how to answer this. I think the the essence of it um, is partially related to how it's made, which is as we've discussed already at length, the improvisational element. To me, that feels kind of central to its construction and its purpose and its you know how it how it works and why people do it but it's also rooted in in american music it's also rooted in black american music it's rooted in a cultural explosion of thought and creativity that mm -hmm. that feels like it could could only have happened in america and only at the time that it happened um you know i mean if you if you're tracing back the history of the music, you can see kind of how it comes about, where it comes from, how it germinates. Um, but I feel like, you know, we could talk about from a musicological standpoint, what it, where it comes from. But I, I think philosophically at its core, it's about having conversations through music. Now, there are a lot of improv, improvisation, um, improvisational elements in other genres, styles of music. So jazz isn't unique in that regard, but in American history and now world history, because jazz is the diaspora of the art form is as wide as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, its foundation is here um, that at its core was this, this desire to communicate. And I mean, I think that comes I don't know. I'm not an ethnomusicologist, so I don't know. I'm just guessing. <laughs> I'm going to guess an answer here. But I think that comes from um, the way music in Western Africa was treated as a conversational art form. It had a social purpose. It was a way for bringing people together, but also conveying information. And if I think back to New Orleans and, you know, 100 plus years ago or more 150 years ago people getting together and communicating um with music in public spaces 
and the the way the improvisation would would drive this kind of like musical narrative that happened in the moment. I think that that combined with what was happening harmonically in um, in the Americas at the time, maybe it's kind of the fusion of those things that kind of bring it to mm -hmm. to this kind of splendid <laughs> result. And from there, people um, moved to urban centers where it became culturally relevant for large groups of people, um, concurrent with the rise of the music business, you know, the industry of music and people being able to go to clubs and hearing it being viewed as an art form, which is um, not just functional, it's functional, it serves a purpose, but it becomes also an aesthetic expression, which is also a way of sharing information, an important one and a way of gathering people around ideas, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not proscribed. The, the, the structure of it is kind of like, you know, I, sometimes I think of the word, the phrase art for art's sake, like the idea of creating something just because it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? You know, and I think people, you know, the music was beautiful, but it also had cultural significance. And it's, you know, once it hit the major metropolitan areas, there were cultural a touch points on there that were really important. But at the end of the day, you know, now when I think of jazz, I think of it as being a music that has this rich history and lineage and each successive generation that comes forward, like myself, for example, and now my students at the new school and, and elsewhere, um, they they take the mantle and try to make uh, put their stamp on it and make the music relevant to them now. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's a beautiful mm -hmm. thing. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that ultimately at the end of the day is an essential component of how I would define the music, that it's evolutionary um, and that it's a reflection of the people who inherit that and then what they turn it into um, that makes it feel relevant to them, mm -hmm. which then makes sense because if you see the music um, in other cultures, I mean, you know, the the, the German jazz scene, for example, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and the Danish jazz scene and, and you know, like... Uh, the, the the jazz scene in in the Philippines. I mean, I go there quite a bit, and I see people, and so it's like, you know, every area now has its own kind of variation of it, and that, to me, is a part of the music. Yes, I you know I think that uh, you know it's a beautiful way that you've you've described that the uh, the idea of uh, culture and heritage, and then taking uh ideas uh and feelings from the past and make them relevant to the future or to your location uh you know i it it, it just fired off in my thinking uh a lot of different uh uh things that i've uh read about or become familiar with uh i think uh not only about jazz in the united states as being I think we're very reflective of the cultural melting pot that the United States is. Uh, people, you know, uh, jazz, uh, likewise, uh, fusing, uh, you know, the idea of European harmonies with European 
based instruments, uh, but uh, also then uh, uh, the types of uh, way sounds are made and uh, syncopated rhythms and things that are work were combined that come from the African and African American culture and really making something that is uniquely American. But then two you beautifully brought that up was that how it's also transplanted into other places in the world because yes there is a there's a magnificent jazz scene in germany with uh you know many of the musicians there uh but even going oh my gosh way way back uh a beautiful book uh i'd recommend if you've not read it it's entitled harlem and momatra and it's about the the establishment of the jazz scene in uh, Paris, going all the way back to right after World War One, and uh, and how many of the men that were in James Reese Europe's band, uh, the 369th, the, the Hellcats, I think they were called, or the Hellfighters, how they chose to stay back in. Uh, Paris rather than come back to the United States because they were treated better there than they were treated back home. And then how they began to establish uh, a jazz scene in uh, some of the clubs in Paris or how uh, uh, another, there's another interesting read about uh, when Louis Armstrong toured uh, Scandinavia, how that kind of lit the flame and the establishment of of a, a lot of uh, jazz and jazz musicians then in uh, Scandinavia. Um, and then the other one that I found very limited info about, but I, I keep digging, is about the jazz scene in Shanghai uh, between the wars. Shanghai mm -hmm. was kind of like the Paris of, uh, of Asia and, uh, and how much of a... a you know, jazz and swing music was was a part of the nightclub scene and what was going on on there as well. So it, it's uh, it, it's interesting how um, things that are American, uh, other than Coca Cola, have uh, you know made it worldwide and have have uh, you know we've planted seeds and and how they've grown there, and uh, it's really kind of a, an interesting. Uh, uh, thought uh, and and of course everyone brings a little bit something different to uh, the music uh, that they create of their own cultural history and and background. Yesterday I was at a symphony concert, just just something that that really is kind of concomitant with what we're talking about. And I, one of the pieces that was performed is a contemporary work by a, a New York-based composer named uh, Jessie Montgomery. And uh, she's currently the uh, uh, a resident composer for the Chicago Symphony. But uh, she, uh, the piece that the, uh, it was the Madison Symphony Orchestra that I went to listen to yesterday. And they did her piece entitled Coincident Dances. And uh, the piece is described as uh, uh, kind of part of her background. She grew up on the Lower East Side and uh, and kind of encapsulating all of the different uh, sounds 
sights and smells that you would experience if you were walking around the Lower East Side. And uh, it was really quite an interesting work uh, and uh, almost kind of painting a, a, a musical portrait, if you will, of of uh, these uh, sensory experiences that one would, you know, have if they were in that that part of Manhattan. And it kind of reminded me of uh, Duke Ellington's uh, composition, Harlem Airshaft, which uh, again was, uh, you know, kind of a, a musical portrayal, or at least the way I used to teach it to my students, of, of you know, life, the hustle and bustle of life in in Harlem in in the forties and uh, and I think that uh, you know we 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 always find I think you spoke very well of this that uh, our own cultural and and uh, situational um, aspects of our perceptions of things find their way into the music and perhaps with what makes it unique I think. Ben, without even knowing it, or maybe you did, I don't know, but I think you've already also addressed what I was going to be my next question for you. And that is, how is it that jazz is still continued to survive, uh, despite the fact that it isn't, it isn't, uh, you know, the popular music in America? Uh, and, uh, but it, it still lives, it still thrives. And you, you kind of intimated at that when you were talking about students taking the music and continuing to make it relevant. But is there anything else you'd like to add to that idea of that, uh, you know, jazz has had its ups and downs. It's been uh, said that it was dead, but uh, it still exists and it still thrives. And, uh, and uh, anything you'd like to add about how and why it's been able to sustain itself as an art form. Yeah. Um, all right. I think, you know, I feel, I feel like we've planted a flag here. Okay. <laughs> and the flag is calling this American music. And, um, and I think it is, but, you know, um, at its core is, um, some people don't like the idea of groups of people being able to have unfettered conversations among themselves and to have conversations that speak to, you know, what they're going through and what's truly happening and all this sort of thing. Um, and I think at the core, you, you, I'm referring back to the, your first question about what jazz is. And we're, I was thinking back now about kind of its formation and, um, how jazz in my mind represents those kind of conversations that people have when they want to say something that isn't always safe to say mm -hmm. and okay um yeah and i and i think that i'm planting the flag to say that that is an american value now it's not um always it, which, which is interesting because like, you know, if you look at how jazz, you, you mentioned Shanghai and how jazz travels around the world as an art form. And I think for many people who um, are not, who didn't grow up in the United States or don't have that as kind of a shared um, cultural history, I think they view jazz as an expression of freedom of thought. Mm -hmm. And that's how I view it. 
And mm-hmm. that's how I think the people who created the music saw it was in the midst of a lot of oppression, saw it as a way to create something of their own um, that, you know, was was profound and beautiful and deep and of the highest artistic quality. Mm-hmm. And that that spirit now lives in the music and and travels to other places where people are similar, similarly um, constrained by what they can say or should say. And for those people, I think that, you know, um, I hope that jazz represents that, the the ability to to say in music what you might not be able to say in words. I'm talking about instrumental music right now. Exactly. No, I'm with that's, you. Yeah, okay. I just want to clarify that. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, but on the other hand, there's like, there's a pushback against that. There's there's a pushback um, against any notion of of that, and um, there's a pushback even in jazz for that. You know, people that want to codify it and and mm-hmm. claim it as a particular type of thing that's representative of one group versus another. I have a very kind of world mm-hmm. view of the music because I feel like its relevance, its it what it. it symbolizes at its essence i mean you ask what its essence is at its essence it's this vehicle it's this beautiful vehicle based on a history for people to say what they want to say Mm -hmm. you know and um you know uh there are many jazz musicians in history idols of mine who are like if who have said if you're not saying that then you're not doing it right if you're ah. not taking chances you're not doing it right if you're not expressing yourself fully then you don't really get it i mean that it that to me is like the really now we're getting to the core of what it is it's mm-hmm. it's um it's a very deep human expression that that has that at its core and sometimes people don't like that some people want to be able to control the conversation or feel like um, something shouldn't be said. And to me, in my heart, jazz is the opposite of that. It's people through music expressing some things that need to be expressed. That's an excellent, excellent way to put it. Uh, and and what, what kind of came to my mind as you were talking is uh, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. Hmm. And in that book, uh, of course, it's, uh, I think, primarily focusing on uh, oppression of people uh, because of uh, uh, their race. But in in the context of the book, she talks about how socially and culturally we like to put people, all people, regardless, race, age, uh, gender, whatever, into boxes. Mm -hmm. Because once we can put uh, people or anything associated with people it could be a you know an art form mode of dress whatever uh, then and we begin to categorize things then it's uh, easier for us and when I say us of course I'm talking about the collective us to deal with because then we don't have anything that comes at us unexpected you know if we can put things in a box 
uh, for, you know, and that could be, you know, well, anything like someone, you know, you're 65 plus years old. Therefore, there are certain behavioral parameters I expect you to adhere to, hmm. you know, and I try to violate that all the time because uh, <laughs> I don't like being in a box. And I think when we talk about art and music, uh, uh, not being put into a box is, is uh, I hear that expression numerous times from musicians of, of all ilks um, and, and agree or disagree. But I think mostly musical labels are a byproduct of the recording industry, probably more so than, than necessarily those people creating the art. Uh, we tend to identify with certain kinds of music, you know, like uh, when people I tell, when I tell people, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a musician. Oh, well, what kind of music do you play? And yeah. I say, well, okay. So I primarily play jazz. Oh, what kind of jazz? Because they want to know, because they, they know that there's a lot of different flavors in that ice cream store of, of, of music and they don't want any flavors that they think they're not going to like. So they want to try to, to categorize and put in a box what it is. So the, uh, you know, we don't have any un unexpected outcomes, I guess. Well, I also uh, think it helps us understand. I mean, I understand the human inclination to create kinds of things. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's what taxonomy is and you know, trying to figure out like where, because you want to understand how things are related. The The problem becomes when you start to attribute value judgments to them, which are more important and which are less important. And that's when you get into trouble because that's where hubris comes in. And we're, we're, we're morons. Human, hu humans are morons <laughs> yeah. uh, in our ability to really attribute value to things about what's important and what's that. We, we have no idea. We're, we're starting to plumb the depths of that, but we honestly don't know. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it leads you down some really, really, really dark paths. If you start to think that way, on the other hand, I appreciate the idea of classification. I'm going to jump to something you said a few minutes ago. This is a huge jump. But <laughs> trying to relate this to the music business, and I'm totally not trying to equate taxonomy with music genres in terms of record stores. But um, it's also true that in the music industry, there's a there's a there's a desire to kind of put types of music into buckets or kind of classifications to make it easier for people to find and to try to build. I think culture and interest around that but it's driven by economic interests so like mm -hmm. if i'm i remember um we're of we're of a probably a similar age where you know we used to go to record stores like tower records or whatever mm -hmm. went to tower records and there would be bins of music and they would be divided by genre mm -hmm. and you could walk from this genre to this genre to this genre but never the twain shall meet so i mean it was like hard to find sometimes it was hard to find the stuff that i was interested in because i wasn't sure where, which section to go to mm -hmm. <laughs> which i don't know what that says but it does speak to you know from the musician's perspective we tend not to try to categorize what we're doing into particular buckets we leave that to the the record labels to figure out mm -hmm. but um you know 
one thing we know for sure is that that um, genres genres have a cultural significance. I don't I don't mean to say they don't. They absolutely do. But at the end of the day, it's tricky when you start to tie that to marketing. Mm -hmm. That's the the thing that most musicians start to have a trouble have trouble with when you tie it to how it's marketed in terms of the business part of it. It's the translation of what we do naturally and organically and culturally with our music, the translation of that into what does that look like in music business in terms of selling stuff mm -hmm. and getting people to, you know, yeah. helping them find our stuff, our music and, and turning it into an industry. And I'm all about the music industry. I love the sure. music industry. I sure. thrive on it. I, I need it. I love it. But the question, but that's a challenging question. Is like, how do you take the what we do and 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 uh, Nile Rodgers and I have had this conversation. And it's ongoing. It's been about a decade long <laughs> about this. And he he writes, you know, Nile is one of those people who just churns out hits, and he's very focused. But he started as a jazz musician, by uh -huh. way, as a jazz guitarist. But he's very focused on writing music that has broad popular appeal. Uh huh. He talks about it with pride and as well he should because he's a, a genius at writing sure. tunes that like everybody loves and producing songs that are iconic and that's meaningful that's not uh -huh. that's a lot of meaning but but anyway we we talk about this a lot like that that kind of um the divide <laughs> As well, you know, it's like you. another thing that fired off in my mind is you were talking about the marketing aspect. I was thinking about, OK, you go to the grocery store and you go down the cereal aisle. Right. And there's 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 this vast array of different kinds of breakfast cereals that you can you can uh, purchase. And, uh, you know, and and there's, it's true to say some are probably maybe more nutritious than others is that necessarily reflected in the uh packaging or the marketing and and how might we think about that in terms of um of art and and music um you know uh, unless you can convince people to take time to read the ingredients or re what's really in it uh you know are they going to are they going to respond to the more nutritious uh uh choices versus what has the flashiest logo or most colorful box that that it comes in uh you know and i i you know i i, I think you hit uh, on a really excellent point and that is that that is making value judgments about about music when people would ask me well, what kind of music do you listen to i listen i said i'll listen to all kinds of music I said, I like there are, you know, I love all kinds of music and my students at the university, when I, when I would, I mean, they were blown away when I would talk about rap and hip hop and rave music and, and all this kind of stuff. And they, they say, you really listen to that? I said, well, I feel I, I, I do. I says, I maybe don't listen to it as frequently as I do, you know, other kinds of music, which, which speak to me more uh, in my particular aesthetic. I says, but I'm open to all kinds of musical expression. And I'm what I'm hoping is to make you a critical thinker about what you listen to so that you could make effective decisions about what you choose to have as part of your musical diet. And uh, because there's value in all of it. Uh, it's just, there's, uh, you know, I, I, uh, 
uh, relay something, just a personal uh, kind of thing that happened. I finally got around to watching the movie Elvis because mm. it's nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. And from watching that film, which I believe was very well done, I'm not necessarily advocating that it ought to win for Best Picture because there's uh, the other movie, uh, Tar, is also nominated. And it's, you know, a different realm of music. It's all about classical music, right? And then you've got a you've got Elvis, which is, of course, all about, about Elvis Presley. But uh, what the movie at least gave to me was a different appreciation for Elvis Presley uh not only as a singer and a musician but as an entertainer and uh it's, it's quite a well done uh film if you haven't seen it i i recommend it uh it really tells his story through a very different set of eyes uh i think than other biopics about elvis presley have done in the past but uh uh but i you know i think i think more and more about his music and particularly that of the 1970s when he was the Las Vegas Elvis uh, and thinking more about, you know, just how showy and how entertaining uh, was, you know, what he was doing. Anyway, I gained a new appreciation for it. Uh, whereas maybe I didn't have as much of one before uh, we, uh, you know, I think that uh, we find value in in all kinds of artistic expression and uh uh you know certainly we still have our own preferences but that doesn't mean that we completely dismiss things that we don't necessarily uh like as well or agree with you know try to have an open mind or at least that's my particular commitment mm, excuse me but uh, I'd like to shift gears just for a bit, Ben, uh, you know, reading in your bio about the advocacy work that you have done uh, on behalf of musicians. I have uh, three questions that I would uh, ask you to address. Uh, one is, what is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century? Um, all right. Give me the other two so I know how okay. to... Okay. All right. So what is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century? Uh -huh. The second question is, how is quote-unquote talent and quote-unquote good music distinguished? Mm -hmm. And thirdly, what happens when we treat music as quote-unquote property, especially mm. with respect to broader ideas of ownership and credit? Okay. All right. Be, be, I ask because you mentioned them as a as a a triptych, and I want to yes. make sure I understand. No, that's quite all right. Um, okay, so I feel like um, if, is it okay? If I I want to talk about the third one first. No problem. Because you're 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 pointing to something um, really interesting and challenging for me and a lot of artists, and that is you know, the idea of, of ownership. And when we're talking about ownership, we're talking about people being able to monetize things and kind of control it. And by monetizing, build economic ecosystems around ideas, because we're talking about intellectual property, which has value. Um, it has value. I think it's enumerated in the constitution, actually, because 
the U.S. Constitution talks about it. The the, the ideas of of um, of inventors to control their ideas. It it sets in motion this idea of of um, thought having monetary value, intrinsic value. So some people don't like that idea. And they feel that that is um, anathema to creativity. And I hear that. Other people feel that ideas um, need to be protected, such as patents and copyright, because um, that's how you build industry around. If somebody's got a really great idea and they pour their heart and soul into creating something unique and, and needed by society in some way, that they should benefit from that and by benefiting build an industry around it to in order that it spread far and wide. So those are the two competing ideas and they both have merit. Mm -hmm. And um, um, if I had to place myself on that spectrum, if it is a spectrum, I would place myself closer to, but not all the way on the side of intellectual property rights, because I feel I know it's there's it's it's settled science that that has paved the way for a music industry of which I am a member and benefit greatly and love and hope to support and need and it allows me to for example talk with you today about my records <laughs> mm -hmm. and all of the records that I love and all of the music that we've talked about this entire uh, session together, all the art that was created that we are aware of now because it was documented and recorded and then sold, you know? So mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, I fall on that side of the spectrum a little bit more. On the other hand, I am not somebody who feels that it has to be draconian and, um, what you don't want to have is a system that is so um, so erring so much on the side of of property rights that that people are afraid to be creative. You don't want to have so much um, control over it that creativity is stifled. What you want is a creative scene, a fertile scene where people are free to follow their instincts and make new things. Um, in a way that is um, not tamped down by the fear that they are violating somebody else's ideas. I mean, everything that we create as people is based on everything else that's ever been created. I mean, I none of us have invented um, things out of whole cloth. We've invented things that are the product of everything that's come before us, the ideas mm -hmm. of everyone else that has created great ideas. And now we're taking those ideas and doing something slightly different with them, mixing and matching them, solving problems that, that emerge little things along the way it's incremental. And to me, that's where great art comes from. I there's what, I mean, without, you know, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll list a few people, Josquin Dupre and Bach and, and Beethoven and Brahms and and Schoenberg and Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis and John Coltrane and you know just keep going and Nile Rodgers without all those people I what do I, I have no idea what to do I mean it's all based on everything that's come before and it's because of all of that that I feel as a jazz musician I'm part of this continuum 
on the other hand, you know, the people, those people, um, and, and every other person who has created something really unique and special, um, I feel needs to have the space to own that and turn it into something um, of value. And, you know, we don't question it when it comes to physical goods. We don't question it when it comes to, like, you know, it's like if I go to the deli and I buy a, a turkey and cheese, like I don't question paying for it. It feels obvious mm -hmm. that I should pay for that because I can see and hold in my hand um, some bread that a bunch of people made and some turkey that some people raised and and slaughtered and processed and cut up uh, for me and a person who assembled those ingredients in a nice package and gave it to me and it's delicious. And so like, I appreciate every step of that process and, mm -hmm. and you know, that all has value. And so it seems obvious that I should pay for that. Um, just as it seems obvious that when somebody creates their own musical turkey and cheese that is a product of everything that came before but is somehow special mm -hmm. because not all turkey and cheese sandwiches are the same that's right and not all pieces of music are the same mm -hmm. that those people that created that music through their skill through their love and passion and years of of building their craft and it is a craft um should be able to you know have some ownership over that in, in so far as they can monetize it and derive a living from it and, and, and turn it into, and to me, all of these pieces working together is what creates the music industry, which creates all of these other things. I mean, let's be honest, there's no Spotify, there's no music sharing without the business of the music. That's right. And I'm, you know, and I've been, this is a little bit of a side, but I, I I was a late adopter to Spotify because I had some problems with the way it was conceived. But those problems, um, I helped to work to address through the, through the Music Modernization Act. I was a small part in trying to push that through, which was solving the problem that that created. So it was like it started, it wasn't right yet. And so we dealt with it. But now that it's been dealt with, it makes me feel a little bit better about um, the positive parts of Spotify, which is people getting to experience music of of all kinds easily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but none of that, Spotify doesn't exist without the music business and the music industry and people's ability to, you know, um, I forget how the constitution puts it, but let's say, uh, I don't have the words, control for a, a limited time of their the rights to their inventions or something i don't know you have to look it up it's section um article mm -hmm. one section eight um but you know the idea of, of people monetizing it so i guess that's my long answer that starts with mm -hmm. the first one but hopefully it works back to your the previous question okay so in other words uh uh you know being a musician that plays a particular given style of music it might be challenging uh, but from the standpoint of the way that music is marketed and the monetization and what one receives in return mm -hmm. okay yeah i mean that's that's why i started with the end because yeah I it relates to the beginning i mean you're talking about the challenges of being a musician 
Was mm -hmm. the, is that your first question? It's like, well, yeah, but challenges of being a jazz musician in the 21st jazz century, yeah. you know, you raise some, I, again, some, it's, this is a wonderful conversation because you're talking about things then that are kind of firing off in my, my thinking. Uh, and I'm curious your reaction. I once read an article that tried to categorize music, not along stylistic lines, but along the lines, uh, well, it, for lack of a better term, follow the money. Mm -hmm. And so it talked about, uh, uh, you know, popular music being uh, the basis, uh, more of a corporate kind of structure, marketing and, and, and selling kind of a product. Jazz and classical music were reliant more on patronage mm -hmm. and folk musics. Uh, and that could be a very broad term. Folk musics uh, continue to uh, survive and thrive and promulgate through traditions. Uh, and, and so there's there's kind of these th these three. There's probably more than three, but but kind of that idea of 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 uh, that. You know, jazz and classical music, the, 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 a lot of the funding there, again, comes from patrons, people who want to see the art form survive and 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 contribute. I mean, I don't think I've ever uh, known of someone like a Taylor Swift who's had a Kickstarter campaign. But yet we see that all the time with a lot of other uh, lesser known artists who record in a pop rock style or uh, certainly among jazz musicians and classical musicians. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, um, and I, I imagine your description of those three genres and your summary of kind of their, how they function or how they move forward is you know that's an oversimplification. Oh, very much so. That's incredible broad brush strokes. Right. Super broad, right. Because I mean, you know, I, I um with pop music, things that are popular, this goes back to my conversation with Nile. I mean, um the industry there's there's they feed each other, but at the beginning of the <laughs> cycle is um, that music, certain types of music have broader appeal than other types of music. So mm -hmm. then the industry comes and says, okay, so this is stuff that more people are interested in. Therefore, let's put our, sink our money into that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think in terms of the chicken and the egg, um, it, it, I, I know that it starts with the art. Mm -hmm. I know that it starts with the art. I mean, are there examples of it starting with the business? Sure. Yeah. Business people that are, and I've talked, you know, I was um, involved in the recording Academy for seven years and, and became, I, I was voted onto the board of the New York chapter. There are 12 chapters. That's the organization behind the Grammys. It's the major trade organization for music. And I, and then I became advocacy chair and then vice president and president and as president and an alternate trustee, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with like, you know, music moguls, people that, that really are like at the top of their field mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in the music industry. And, you know, they, they, some of them really talk about music as a commodity in, in the sense of figuring out what is the most popular and what's easiest to sell. Um, but 
most of them really see it coming from the art. They're, they're like waiting for the artist to create something that they can say, oh, yeah, let's try. I know I can sell that. So mm-hmm. it's not like they're, they're, they, they're great at selling stuff, but they're not the creators. I mean, mm-hmm. even at the very top of pop music, it really does come from the people's minds who are the, the people who are creating this. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, Taylor Swift is a, is a great example because for, for me personally, uh, I can share that I'm not, it stylistically, it's not my cup of tea in terms of like where I, my daughter, mm-hmm. she, uh, you know, she loves Taylor Swift and listens to her music all the time. I deeply appreciate it. Um, I deeply appreciate the skill that it, that it that it that it takes to put together, and she's just a genius at doing that, writing stuff that people want to hear, which I deeply deeply appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also equally appreciate her her kind of. I don't know if this is the right phrase, but business acumen. I mean, what I mean is that's that's not a good phrase. What I mean is her ability to take the things that she's creating and understand how to kind of bridge that divide between the creative impulse of the artist and <laughs> you know the relentless drive of industry to monetize the music. And she's just done a really good job of doing both. I mm-hmm. think that's my mm-hmm. opinion based on, you know, a lot of uh, just my understanding of, of, of the industry. So, you know, um, I don't know how I got here, but <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're on to that idea of, of, you know, uh, when we talk about the, the music industry, they're not the bad guy. No, I need because them. that's what that's what that's what helps to to them. motivate and sustain, okay. uh, and and marketing is not 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 the bad guy. Uh, yeah, I like know. to think, and maybe in, and I'm biased, of course, that maybe the good guy is education, because we at least try to teach people how to be perceptive listeners so that they can critic you know, be critical thinkers and make decisions for themselves about value judgments about what is bad or good instead of just, you know, letting someone else decide for them what is bad. Yeah, or good. that's fine. I mean, I, I feel like you know, I, I, I feel I'm so passionate about music that I care about it. Yeah. And when somebody, when it's it's but i i think about other people who aren't as passionate about music like friends of mine who are passionate about food or mm-hmm. fashion i have a lot of friends who are passionate about fashion and i am not mm-hmm. and they're like how can you wear that ridiculous thing that you're wearing I'm like this <laughs> yeah. i got at the gap yeah. it's i love the gap they're <laughs> they, you yeah. know, they sell kind of stuff that i like this is actually not the gap but you know what i'm saying yeah, i understand i don't, I don't I don't express myself through my clothing and I, I value it. Um, I, I recognize its importance and I really deeply appreciate and love people who see fashion and clothing as more than just its function, but as an expression of their humanity. Um, I feel that way about music, but I don't, I don't expect other people to necessarily feel that way about it. And that's why I, I, you know, I see our role as educators. Yeah, sure, is to help people appreciate it and understand its subtlety and be critical thinkers in the sense of 
delving into it in the way that you and I delve into it as music lovers, but I can't expect, I don't think we should expect necessarily people to do that. I don't think we should demand that they do that. I, I hope that they do, but you know, if they like, um, I'm, I'm not going to name an artist, but imagine the, the uh, McDonald's of artists, you know, somebody who's mm -hmm. really easily obtained. They're the same everywhere. It goes down easy. You kind of regret it at the end, but it's cheap. I mean, I, I, I get that there's a role for, for, for musicians who create music like that. And for audiences that, that gobble it up on mass. Um, and that's fine. I don't, I don't actually have a problem with that either. I happen mm -hmm. to live in a world that's, because of my passion for the art, um, that's not nearly enough. I would never be satisfied with a meal like that. Right, not even right, close. right. Yeah. Um, but I don't bemoan other people for for doing that. I just think that's like, whatever. Um, if you're into that, that's fine. You know, it's funny, Ben. As I hear you talking, I hear my mother's voice. Because really? she used to always have to remind me. Remember, Craig, not everyone thinks like you do. Yeah, there you go. And that's, that's I think, really what you're, what you're getting right to, Ben, is not mm -hmm. everybody thinks the same, nor puts the same amount of, of importance on the same things that we do. That's right. Uh, and, and, and there are probably even different, uh, uh, you know, gradations of within music. You know, some oh, yeah. people put, particular emphases where others wouldn't and so on and we know that there's you know um people who are music snobs just like there are fashion snobs and mm -hmm. food snobs and and all yeah. of that uh you know and with you know love to downplay and and uh and put down mcdonald's but you know darn good and well that they've probably snuck a big mac every once in a while without telling anybody <laughs> yeah well that anyway movie sideways with my uh, i grew up with paul giamatti we were in school together uh -huh. and that movie sideways kind of sums it up well for me because his character is uh -huh. so great in that film his wine snobbery and just because he's so passionate about it and no one and his friend really doesn't give a crap about no it. i know it. it's, so, like, it's funny. at what point do we drink the wine and he's like no you have to savor every you know. yeah 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 and i i, I deeply <laughs> appreciate his passion giamatti's character's passion in that uh -huh. movie and relate to it as a music lover i'm like him when it comes to some things in my life like music and stereo systems and whatnot but i it's it, you know the other guy's perspective is totally valid. Yes, yes, it is. You know, we have yeah. to remind ourselves not to be so, um, certainly not judgmental. You can't yes. be judgmental. You can just say, I love this. Mm -hmm. And I hope you do too. That's right. That's, that is a way to do it. The other, the other uh, metaphor I was thinking about or thinking metaphorically about was religion. You know, we can't we can't point at somebody else and say your religion is wrong or your religion is bad. They're all they're different. Everybody has different viewpoints about things. And and and, you know, I can sh share with you what I believe and you can share with me what you believe. And then, you know, we can all kind of take it from there. I think it's the same way with with art and food and and fashion and everything else. But uh, anyway, I would I would really like to to maybe shift gears. I think we've we've really kind of talked a lot about the aesthetics and 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 business aspects and property and 
talent and, and challenges and so forth, I'd like to get right to you specifically. And that is talking about your uh, compositions. Uh, and, and there are kind of three different questions that are interrelated that I'd like you to address. One is uh, what motivates you to write? Mm -hmm. Then when you write an original piece, uh, what seems to come, now this is again, very broad, very general, uh, and, or maybe I should add specifically the last piece you wrote, but, uh, you know, do you start with a melodic idea, rhythmic idea, chord changes, or particular mood? Okay, so in other words, that's kind of the, you know, we, we've got the, the, the what, the how, and then uh, kind of flesh out for us very your various approaches to the elements of music uh, that you take to create different colors and forms of musical expression. Okay, so starting at the beginning. Yeah, what motivates what, you to write? Yeah, what motivates me to write? I mean, yeah, I I've always been interested in writing, and by writing, I don't mean writing on paper because I started composing very, very early, I'm going to say four or five years old. Mm -hmm. um, mostly, my, my father had a, a this really cool tape recorder. They don't make them anymore, I don't think, but the brand was called Wallensack. Oh, yes. Remember I those? remember them. Oh, real yes. Real. They were ubiquitous. He bought it for work. He's a psychoanalyst, so he bought it to, to you know, to document things. And he, um, anyway, so I used to use that to record myself playing any manner of instruments. I'm talking about four years old, right? So okay. it's mostly banging on stuff, banging on guitars, banging on mm -hmm. pots and pans and boxes and pieces of furniture, whatever, recording those and then playing them back and figuring out how to create sections of different bangings. <laughs> so that's me at four. So at the, at the core is I like putting pieces of things together. Now flash forward to... Um, now I'm trying to pursue a, a, my life in music and trying to learn how to express those things we we talked about before, the elements of surprise and kind of have conversations in the moment. And I, mm -hmm. I, I found myself in myriad playing situations in New York City with lots of really great musicians, um, all of whom had come from different stylistic backgrounds and had different things they wanted to bring to the music. And it was this process of negotiating all these different ways mm -hmm. of doing things and i noticed that some times i really enjoyed what was happening and other times that i didn't sometimes i felt like tune uh tunes that we were playing um really struck a chord with me metaphorically um and other times i just felt like what we were playing i just didn't know what to say with and so the reason I started being more intentional with my writing, my composing, was to try to figure out what it was about those tunes that I loved playing, the ones that really struck a chord in me that felt easy to play, where when somebody called it on a, on a jam session, for instance, I would say, oh, yeah, great, I'm going to be able to do my thing on this. I started to try to figure out what it was about those tunes that made them um, good for me. And also what was about the tunes that I didn't really gravitate towards, like what was it that I didn't like? 
And I started trying to write tunes that just <laughs> felt good to play. I mean, that's really the the inspiration. It's like, mm -hmm, how do mm -hmm. I get to that thing I want to get to musically? Mm -hmm. um, I could wait till somebody randomly calls something, or I could create my own kind of musical vehicle to get there, to 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 be, you know, to create something that just feels easy to play for me and, and allows me that space to do what I want to do musically. That was really ins the inspiration. It's it's like you're, you know, as a composer, you have a blank canvas and you can kind of, you can create a landscape. And it's like, what kind of world do you want to explore? You know, what is that landscape? What are some of the key elements? What do you put in there? What do you leave out? You know, what do you leave blank? And so mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of where that, the initial inspiration uh, started and then you know then the process of figuring out how to do that I mean I did go to a performing arts high school called the Educational Center for the Arts in New Haven where mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. first started learning how to play music with other people um, and then I went to NYU which had a small at that point at that time in history a very small jazz school um, not even a school department within a larger school it was actually mm -hmm. in the nursing and health school <laughs> that's where jazz was located at the time and, <laughs> um, yeah it was very small but I did get to study with some great composers and musicians on the scene Jim McNeely Joe Lovano oh wow Irwin, a lot of the people from the Vanguard band who were in the Vanguard band at the time mm -hmm. be kind of in residence there as teachers uh, Steve Lespina so I studied with them and started to figure out how to take my writing and put it into a more intentional kind of shape. But I started to feel after a time that I was, you know, you'd, you'd hit these ruts, like you'd learn one kind of thing and you'd emulate. I, like everyone else, emulated the people that I loved, tried to write music that sounded like, let's say, a Keith Jarrett tune or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then after a time realized that I was my sound was very derivative I mean they really sounded like Keith Jarrett tunes for example and so then I started to try to find my voice and that's a process that's the hardest process I think for musicians is to take the things that you've heard and you love you start by emulating but after a time you can't emulate anymore you really have to start to craft your own thing and so it becomes a a difficult process of editing out. And one of the ways I solved that was you, you asked if I start with a melody or, or, and you know, that's, that's how I would normally start. I would sit at a piano or a guitar or the bass and pick out a melody, pick out some harmonies to go with the melody, or maybe I would start with a harmonic progression and then try to find a melody within that. Um, but I decided after a time I was stuck and I decided I would start from a different place. And this was really for me kind of a turning point in my musical evolution. I decided I would start from the position of timbre. So that's like the sounds of the instruments, like what, what something sounds like, especially when you're creating sounds that are a little bit unusual. Um, mm -hmm. At this point, I was teaching in a, a small school by day playing at night the school is called the third street music school on 11th street 
weirdly, but they, they had a great room in the basement and um, with a piano and a drum set. And I used to, I pretty much had unlimited access to that. So I would call people to come over and play, created an informal jam session. The price of admission was a new piece of music and people started showing up and um, you know, we can talk about this later, but that's what eventually turned into the Jazz Composers Collective. But at that time, it was more about me finding people who were willing to try these experiments that I wanted to try. And what I wanted to try was um, starting from the position of timbre, like what does an instrument sound like? And out of that, these other ideas emerge. You know, like once you get like a texture in your mind, um, the melody seems to kind of grow out of that. It's like, oh, okay, well, this texture is very um, angular and brittle, and therefore what I need is what the melody that suggests itself is a very angular melody. Oh, but what if as an antidote to that angular, brittle timbre, I create a very lyrical, sweet melody as an antidote? And now you're playing with... Um, aesthetics, things like contrast, you know, as having sections that contrast, having sounds that contrast, um, things like proportion, like how much of something, how long of something, you know, so that's, that's kind of where my writing, I think, took mm -hmm. on another, just kind of jumped uh, to another level was during that time. And um, yeah, and so that's, that's where in terms of your third question, you know, various ways of composing and approaching it. That's where that started that train of thought rather than what, what you just would assume would be the case. You sit down at the piano and you try to figure some mm -hmm. stuff out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This was a little bit more intentional, a little bit more experimental. I was listening to a lot of music of composers who were trying to create new fragments of ideas through almost intellectual well not almost completely sometimes intellectual um procedures and i'm thinking now of the serialists and the 12-tone composers like alban berg and schoenberg people who serialists who took tone rows and almost like mathematical <laughs> uh um, algorithms, that's the word I'm looking for, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. algorithms to to create new pieces of music that they can then mm -hmm. create new things based on their aesthetic ideals. Right, so right. That, that's what was happening with me at that time. So this is like early 90s. And I was mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to get to some new spaces, new, new ideas through this mm -hmm. more intellectual pursuit. And that's right. what shook me out of my I just play what I know. I sit down at the piano, whatever comes out is cool. Mm -hmm. it, that worked for a little while, but at some point I, I started hitting some dead ends. So I needed something to shake it up. And that that's where I, that's how I found that. Okay. We just all kind of need to find different stimulus then from, you know, yeah. whether it's cognitive or affective or psychomotor or, you know, those that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's an interesting, an interesting, uh, 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 approach and an interesting way to you, you talk about your music. I, I think that uh, that would then lead me to to tell my listeners to make sure to check out 
your recordings. And, uh, you know, now that you have uh, Action Refraction out mm. uh, as a 2023 release. Now, is that a remix or is that a whole brand new album? Yeah, so that's a remix. So okay. the stuff that that came out of what I was just describing was an earlier group of mine called Medicine Wheel. Okay. Um, which was, this is like late 90s, mid 90s to, to early 2000s. That's okay. kind of the music that came out of that. Um, Action Refraction now is uh, 15 years after that. Oh, and that's okay. after I recorded... Um, nine albums worth of music for a label called palmetto records the 10th uh -huh. album i decided to try something new for me new for me and that is to delve into other people's music so action refraction is actually my covers album <laughs> oh okay I, I i specifically didn't do my music there's one tune of mine that's an original tune on there but the, but the other ones are or all other people's music. And my idea there was to take these songs that I like, especially um, an extremely diverse collection of composers. So Donny Hathaway, Samuel Barber, The Carpenters. Well, that is pretty diverse. E.J. Harvey. <laughs> I mean, you can see this is just like all over the map. You were talking sure. before about how you listen to all different types of music. Well, yeah. I do too. And yeah. there's certain stuff that I, if, if it's good music, I love it. And I love all those those artists. And I, I, I thought to myself, could I make a record that pulled together somehow all of those varied styles into an album that felt kind of cohesive, that was like one statement? And in order to do that, I had to take all the tunes apart and then kind of put them back together. I took them all apart so that I could start to hear some common threads um, that might connect them and then put them back together in, in ways that I thought, what that I hoped was cohesive. I mean, I, I leave it to the listeners to tell me if that if I succeeded or not, but that was my intention. I tried to to pull it all together and I hadn't done that before. I mean, every other record I had made had just been coming out of myself and you know mm -hmm. what I was thinking about at the time so this was like a different feel for me to try to do that and that was my 10th and it was going to be my last album for Palmetto I knew that because my contract with them we re-upped two times but that was the end of the, the third term I think the third term and I decided at that point that I was going to strike out on my own mm-hmm and uh, I knew that. I didn't tell them that, but I knew that I was going to do that. And um, so I was thinking, well, now's my chance to do a, a covers album. Let's do that. And anyway, um, the reason I say that is the is because um, years later, the, the term, I've always owned my own music. In other words, um, early on in my career, I had a great conversation with one of my idols, Andrew Hill, who Mm -hmm. a great pianist and composer one of the legends of the music and he said ben i was telling him i was going to release my first record he's like don't ever sell your music <laughs> in this cryptic way of speaking and i was like wait wait how can you not sell your music um i i came to learn what he meant was um, not to give away the rights to your music and to somehow retain some to retain ownership and then what what's called a license so you would license your recordings to a record mm -hmm. label set period of time so that's what i did with palmetto and in 2018 
the rights of all of all 10 of the albums I did for them reverted to me, meaning that I regained complete ownership over them. And that's something that, you know, a lot of artists um, don't do. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes often learn to come to regret not having done. Um, they they come to feel like their records are owned by other people and they're, you know, they're frustrated by that. I mean, you know, I'm talking about like major pop stars. I mean, oh, sure. Prince wrote Slave on his cheek. And the reason he wrote that is he didn't own his records. And he mm-hmm. was concerned about, you know, the label and not having control over it. And Taylor Swift was angry because, you know, she didn't own her records. So she genius she owned the music she re-recorded her records herself that's how you do it you as an artist there's something about and this comes back to our conversation about ownership one of the reasons why an artist would want to own their music is that they can do other things with it they have they can breathe new life into it Mm -hmm. and when my contract with palmetto expired i thought well i can i can breathe new life into these records i can pull them apart like i've done with those tunes on action refraction and recreate them so mm-hmm. when the rights of the records reverted the master tapes came back to me all the multi-track tapes and so that was 2018 and then a couple years passed i was just very busy with life and i wasn't sure what to do with them and then the pandemic hit oh yeah and the pandemic you know obviously touring and recording and playing and performing and live music came to a screeching halt and we didn't know how long music was going to be paused and it was a really really hard time for everybody loss and misery and anxiety and for musicians there was also this element of like our way of life had really come to a stop because live music was our way of life and and recorded music was our way of life and we couldn't do any of that anymore um and so i thought well this would be a good time in my life to look back on things that I'd done before. And I had these records and the, you know, these master tapes. And I thought, let me, let me look, listen to those again and open them up and pull them apart and remake them kind of through my ears of today. Uh Um, You know, my, my modern ears and see what, what we did and then try to kind of reconstitute them uh, and make them sound even better. And so that's what I've been doing. Well, that's great. That's great. Uh, well, Ben, we're kind of getting down to the tail end of uh, our interview. And I always like to throw in one more question uh, just so that I can be as uh, in inclusive and complete as possible. Is there, Ben, is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about? Well, I feel like I just talked a lot. In that well, we did. Record, we did, but I talk. wanted to get to the new records because you opened okay. the door. And for me, it's important um, to get the word out about the albums. Okay. And also, um, you know, I mean, if there's a theme, I think that that I that I feel is important to me as an artist is this um, is the theme of kind of the do it yourself theme. And, and by that, sure. I mean, artists having some um uh say in what happens with their music and um, as much as they can have their hands in every part of the process i think that's a good thing so i'm all about artists um you know empowerment and and finding ways to work together for their peers and themselves to um you know to make music that 
that they believe has value and that they love and that really comes from their heart and is just a product of their their passion and um and so that's i guess my my guiding principle as as a musician so that's uh-huh. if anybody listened all the way through to this extremely long conversation and <laughs> at the end here i guess that's the thought that i would want them to leave with is right. um knowing there are artists out there thinking about these things and uh and i hope they feel the same way i hope they at least hear in us um the passion and they appreciate it in the way that you and i want them to appreciate it i think that's that's a great way to uh to express it uh you know uh i i kind of put it to many of the people i play with said we might as well have fun because we're not necessarily going to get rich Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's have a good time and let's do something that that we want to do and it, it means a lot to us and let's let's play and have a great time and and uh and create something meaningful so i think that's that's uh i think a wonderful way to kind of tie things up but uh ben i want to thank you uh for taking time to talk with me i know you're a busy guy because i've seen your your performance calendar uh, on your website. You've got a lot of good gigs coming up uh, over the the next several weeks uh, at uh, Birdland of all places. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I wish I was, I wish I was in New York and I could just, uh, you know, hop a ride over and come and hear you play. But the commute for me from Wisconsin to uh, New York city, will be prohibitive Uh, of that. We were just out in Stevens point a couple of weeks ago. What's that? We were just out in Stevens Point. Oh, were you? Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Trio. Yeah. But, oh, wonderful. Uh, I'm not sure where you are, but that was. Well, that was I'm 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 a ways from Stevens Point. I'm more down towards uh, Chicago. Okay. Uh, I'm in the. Uh, I'm actually about thirty miles uh, west of Lake Michigan. I'm about an hour and a half northwest of Chicago. Uh, well, so yeah. and points yeah. about. Point is a good three hours away from where I am. So when you when you turn your stereo up really loud, nobody cares, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the beauty of it, man. See, I live in, in a New York apartment. So. Yeah. Well, actually, I live in a condo, but fortunately, okay. <laughs> fortunately, my neighbors or my neighbor, uh, my both my wife and I are musicians, and when they moved in, we said, "Now, if we ever bother you with our practicing or anything," and all they said was, "We love music, just play." Mm, so, so that's uh, that's a nice uh, thing to have. But, uh, but I, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today, and and Ben, I want to wish you uh, all the best uh, with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. Thanks, Craig. I appreciate that. Thanks for the. Interesting conversation. I like you the bet. And, and it was, and I really enjoyed speaking with you. So have a great rest of your day. You too. All right. Thanks. Bye. My discovery composer of the week is Ephraim the Syrian, born circa 309, died June 9th, 373. He was known by the sobriquet the lyre of the Holy Spirit. Born to Christian parents in Nisibis, he became a deacon before 338, unlike the majority of his outstanding Greek and Latin patristic contemporaries who were bishops. He remained a deacon 
and spent his life preaching and teaching. He left Nisibis sometime after the Persians captured it in 363, moving to Edessa, where he stayed for the rest of his life, possibly establishing a theological school there. He was a figure of such immense influence that soon after his death, his biography was much elaborated with apocryphal events, and his literary output was greatly expanded by spurious works. Modern scholars such as Edmund Beck and Bernard Autier have arrived at a reliable biography, and Beck has edited all the authentic Syriac works. Of particular interest to music historians are Ephraim's poetical works. They fall into two broad categories. Mimre, homilies written in meter, that is, in lines divided into two halves of equal syllables, and madrashe, hymns, at least some of which were probably intended for singing. The latter are usually strophic in a variety of meters, frequently with refrains. Prominent among the subjects they treat are the combating of heresy, the praise of virginity, and the celebration of principal liturgical feasts. Sozomen, the early 5th century historian, narrated that Ephraim's hymns were written to combat the heretical hymns of Bardesin, who died in 222, who had composed a book of psalms in imitation of the Hebrew Psalter and whose son Harmonius had provided the tunes. Ephraim, then, was supposed to have set his own poems to the tunes of the heretical hymns and to have them sung by choirs of virgins. There is apparently at least some truth to the story. Ephraim himself mentioned the heretical hymns of Bardesian and Harmonious, and Jacob of Seruch credibly confirms that Ephraim taught the Daughters of the Convent, a community of devout women at Edessa, to sing his hymns. Ephraim is generally considered to be one of the greatest Christian poets of any period or region. It has long been assumed that he exercised considerable general influence upon Eastern Christian hymnography, and in recent years a specific influence upon the Kantakia of the 6th century Romanos the Melodist has been established. That wraps episode 131. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing New York City-based jazz trumpet player, composer, and arranger Brian Pereski. Other upcoming interviews include Chicago-based blues singer Derek Procell, Chicago-based blues harp player Martin Lang, Minneapolis-based rock, funk, and soul singer Mae Simpson, and New York City-based jazz bassist Knox Barber. So don't touch that dial. 
If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. Thank mm-hmm. you.